Well, good morning to you as I see you out here at worship. And your presence here at this uh, 9.30 worship hour uh, tells me two things about you. That, that you, got, you got it correct about the spring time change, that it's uh, losing an hour springing forward. And the other thing is that you braved uh, the 23 degrees this morning to come out on a beautiful spring morning to come and worship. And last Sunday we were, what, like 80 degrees all, all weekend long. So, so it kind of looks like to me, uh, time-wise change, that we, we made that move an hour ahead. Uh, so we get into more time, at, more daylight, I guess, at the end of the day. But weather-wise, it seems like we digressed and went back in, towards winter, doesn't it? And 20-some degree weather here in, in March. So those who are not here, uh, maybe you took advantage of uh, the opportunity on a cold morning and a loss of an hour Maybe just to kind of get a warm cup of coffee and kind of hunker down and watch us on uh, our simulcast. So hopefully those who aren't here are watching us as we worship together this morning. But I'm glad that you're here. I hope you're ready to hear the Word of God. Uh, we're continuing on, as Brian has already said, in our second week on the Easter series, Beyond the Cross, the Hope of Easter. And we're walking with Jesus step by step. And incident after incident and passage of scripture after scripture, these seven weeks that will take us to the cross and then beyond the cross or the glorious of Easter morning when we celebrate that the tomb is empty. And the tomb being empty in itself was not the good news and not the hope that we were looking for, but is the fact that when Jesus was brought back from the dead, that is the power of God that did that. And that is where we find our hope. And that's where we'll be focusing on Easter morning. Because the empty tomb was just uh, not the good news because the disciples had forgotten once again that Jesus had told them that he would go to Jerusalem. He would be betrayed, arrested, crucified, dead and buried. But on the third day, God would raise him back to life again. They forgot that. And so the empty tomb in itself was not good news. They thought that, that maybe the body had been stolen. What had happened to the body of Jesus? They didn't know. They were, they were bewildered and perplexed until Jesus came in his resurrected body and appeared to them and comforted them. So we're going to walk with Jesus as he prepares himself for that moment, for that time, to fulfill his mission and purpose for coming into this world. As I think about where we are in this journey with Jesus, and we're walking with him as he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem, I think about another 33-year-old who made a fantastic journey. About 2,300 years ago, a young man by the name of Alexander walked into the history books when he led his army on a march from their native land of Greece as far as India. It was far-reaching, but it was also unstoppable. Alexander didn't just travel, but he defeated enemy after enemy after enemy. Uh, some historians say that he sat down and wept once they had gotten to that point because there was no more territory to conquer. Uh, other historians tell us, and maybe both things were true, that they went back home to Greece only because his soldiers were homesick and they wanted to go back home to Greece. But it was a, a far-reaching movement, a far-reaching march and journey by Alexander. And it has profound influence upon America that you might not realize, even though he had never set foot in America. But because of his coming as a, what he conquered, the lands he conquered, and what he brought was, he brought the culture of Greece. 
And we still see that today. And our art, our architecture, and our democratic form of government have all been greatly influenced by Greeks. If Alexander hadn't have conquered and brought the, the influence of the Greek world, it could have been the Persians, who are now modern-day Iranians, who would have conquered. Our language, our government, our art, everything would be different than it is today. What an amazing, fantastic feat. No wonder at the age of 33, with everything that Alexander conquered, he's now known as Alexander the Great. Well, about 330 years after Alexander the Great embarked upon his journey, we find another 33-year-old who embarked upon his journey, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew that he came with a destiny in mind. He knew that he came with an eternal purpose. And that would be found and culminated when he reached Jerusalem. And so he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, he didn't have the kind of influence that Alexander had. And so for throughout history, ever since his journey and ever since his sacrifice of his life and fulfilling the mission of God, there are those who have appreciated what Christ has done and those who haven't appreciated what he did. But Jesus' march was more far-reaching than that of Alexander the Great because God used Alexander's march to prepare the world for Jesus to come, a language that was common, an intricate road system that made it uh, very easier for people to walk and communicate and travel and carry the message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God around the world. What Alexander the Great did affected people for centuries. What Jesus did, though, affects every one of us for all eternity. And so today we look at a passage of Scripture that I think is an intriguing one uh, because of so many different factors, because of the dialogue, because of the characters involved, and because of the analogy that Jesus uses. But it's another step in the journey that Jesus is making towards Jerusalem. And it seems, when we start reading this, that his arch enemies, the Pharisees, were kind of trying to hurry him along or maybe even help him along as we go into this passage of Scripture. But this Scripture today tells us something about the commitment of the Savior. Last week we looked at the courage of the Savior. Today we're looking at the commitment of the Savior. And I think if you listen carefully you will see how we unpackage this, this passage of Scripture and it reveals to us the commitment of the Savior. And I want you to keep another thought in mind. And that is that it also challenges us about our commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life and to our life lived as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So keep that in mind. We see the commitment of our Lord Jesus Christ and we also are challenged by that about our commitment and our relationship with him and how we live here as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So look with me at the scripture that you find in Luke 13, beginning in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case... I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when we enter into this passage of Scripture, verse 31 tells us that at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. That's interesting that they would come to him. Maybe on the surface is where he seem, they're seemingly being helpful to him. But I think if we go back up to verse 22, you see what uh, really uh, what really irked them on as they came to speak to Jesus about this. The scripture tells us here that Jesus went through the towns and the villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And, and the scripture goes on in verse 23 that someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? You see, they were beginning to hear him a little more closely. His time was drawing short. Maybe there's a greater intensity in his voice or in his walk as he made his way to Jerusalem. And maybe they were paying a little more closer attention to what he was having to say. And so the question comes, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus goes into the discourse then about there's only a narrow door into heaven. And he talks about that. He says, many, I tell you, will try to enter, will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank before you, and we, and we taught, well, you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, who do you think Jesus is talking to there? Could it be the Pharisees who come to him and say, Jesus, it's time for you to move on, <laughs> you know? I think he's beginning to be like a pebble in their Birkenstock sandals. He's getting under their skin. He's speaking directly to them. He goes on and says, People will come from the east and the west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Many people will come through that narrow door. But then I think this is where the ultimate slap in the face went to the Pharisees. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And so then I think that comes to verse 31. At that time then, after they had heard this, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So this is an intriguing passage of Scripture because of the dialogue and the characters involved in it and the analogies that Jesus makes. Did the, did the Pharisees really want to help Jesus out and give him some guidance or did they want him to leave their area? Well, we're not really sure. But I think what they were trying to do ultimately, though, was to deter Jesus from his assigned mission and purpose. And so Jesus had to respond to that with commitment. And we see his commitment evident in his response 
to the deception and the deceit of the Pharisees. See, the commitment of the Savior is evident in his response to the deception and deceit of the Pharisees. Look at how Jesus answered them when they came to him. He knew he had a mission, and he would not be deterred from fulfilling that mission. When they came and said, you need to leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said, go tell that fox. That's the analogy he makes. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. I think it's safe to say we're just really not sure what the motive of the Pharisees really was. I, I, I think, though, that they had some kind of desire for Jesus to leave. They really wanted him to leave. Did he, did he really irritate them with his teaching? Had they picked up on the fact that Jesus really had nothing nice to say about them and that he was bringing to light every time he addressed them their hypocritical lifestyle that they lived? And I think if that's true then, these words at the, at the beginning of this passage of Scripture, when he says to them, indeed there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. And he talks about those who say, let us in. We did all these things in your name. And God says, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. I think the Pharisees are kind of saying, it's time, Jesus, for you to move on. It's time for you to move on. Herod wants to kill you. You need to move on. Did they want Jesus to, to leave them alone? Possibly. Or maybe they were being used by Herod to scare Jesus out of his territory. Because I don't think Herod really wanted to deal with Jesus. He'd heard enough about him. He was wondering if the, Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life that he had put to death. So I think Jesus' reply spoke to both the Pharisees and to Herod, and he showed them two things. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees, and he wasn't afraid of Herod and what they could do to them. Though he knew the kind of power that they had. He knew the power that the Pharisees had religiously. He knew the power that Herod had politically and as the leader of the government and the enforcer of the rules. He knew that power, but he was not afraid of that because he knew he came with a greater power and a greater purpose. And that's what Jesus' response to them is saying, I'm going to continue to do what I'm called to do, what I'm sent to do. I'm going to drive out demons. I'm going to heal people. He says, I'm going to proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm going to do what I'm called to do as a prophet to another level. See, Jesus in verse 32 makes it clear that he is not going to be distracted from his mission because he had a commitment to that. He talks, I think, about analogies once again uh, about his ministry and about his ultimate life and death. He says, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. When he's saying that I will reach my goal, it's a form of the word teleleste, which means it is finished. It will be complete then. Reach my goal. He's saying, 
I will accomplish my purpose. I think Jesus was saying, tell Herod, I've got work to do. I'm not through yet. And I'm not through with him. And he called him a fox. Isn't that interesting? A lot of speculation has been written about why Jesus called him a, a, a fox. Some think it's because Herod was rather sly. I don't think Herod was sly. Herod was forthright with everything that he did. And he didn't care about the damage that he created. But I think Jesus' response about Herod being a fox was he was commenting on Herod's ineptitude or his in, uh, uh, inability to rule correctly and especially his inability to quench what Jesus came to begin. And that is a movement called the kingdom of God. He called him a fox. Another thing I think that can be implied in this is that Jesus was letting Herod know that he knew what Herod really was. And while Herod professed to be a lion and a great powerful ruler, Jesus is saying, you're really a fox. And what he was meaning by that, he is the opposite of the lion, and he is a pompous pretender. Herod was a pompous pretender. So then we see in verse 34 how Jesus takes his, his mission a step farther, and, and he cries out as he looks at the city of Jerusalem, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he says, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus used that analogy of a fox to describe Herod. Then he looks out over Jerusalem and its lostness and its rebellion against him and the message of the kingdom of God. And he compares them to being chicks, innocent little chickens. And he says he wants to be a protective mother hen for these endangered chicks. Why that analogy? Well, Herod was a fox and foxes prey on chickens and we're an easy prey to chickens as chickens in a hen house to a fox. So what do we see here of Jesus in this incident? Well, we see his commitment once again to his life purpose. And that he would not be deterred from that. He, in this setting, he would not alter his life's calling, nor would he change the reason for his coming. He came to establish the kingdom of God, and he did so by proclaiming the love of God and the forgiveness that God would offer through his sacrificial act, through his crucifixion, through his death and burial and subsequent resurrection. And he's saying in response to the Pharisees and to the implied presence of Herod, nothing will stop me. I have steadfastly, resolutely, other translations say, set my face toward Jerusalem. And nothing, no power on earth or anywhere else will stop me 
from fulfilling my life's mission. He came to offer the forgiving love of God. So now I ask you already to think about how this relates then when we see this commitment of Jesus Christ in the midst of of the, the deceit that's so evident is that how does it challenge us and our commitment? I think he does so that he challenges us to examine our life in terms of our purpose, our goals, our direction, and our lifestyle in life. See, his desire for us is to be as committed to him and the kingdom of God as Jesus was being committed to fulfilling his mission to establish the kingdom of God. The French philosopher of the last century by the name of Jacques Martin said that there are really only three great questions we need to ask and answer in life. Who am I? Where am I? And where ought I be going? Who am I? Where am I? And where should I be going? Jesus knew the answer to all of those. He knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God, the Messiah. He knew he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 13, the script 3, the scripture tells us that he understood that God had given him everything and that he had come from God and that he was going to God. That's an affirmation of Jesus is knowing who he was, where he was. He was in the world on the mission that God has sent him to fulfill and where he ought to be. And that is ultimately back in his rightful place of glory where he set aside his glory and his rights to come into earth, to be a humble human being, to become a servant and to be obedient to the will of God and to go to the cross and allow his life to be sacrificed there for our sins and his bloodshed so that we could be forgiven and live in that relationship with God. He knew all of those things. And he was committed to that. And so his challenge to us is then, do we want to deal with the big overarching questions of life? About who are we? And where are we? And where ought we to be? Or do we just want to live in and out every day a mundane routine where we refuse to deal with the big issues of life? And we fail to challenge our own level of commitment to the kingdom of God. Because of his commitment to the kingdom of God then Jesus challenges us to carefully examine our life and to ask the questions like, what drives our value system? How do we make our choices in life? what, what, What guides your decision? What sets the course for your life? What determines the way you think and the way that you treat those around you? My hunch is that most of us would like to say, I I do it out of the compassion of Christ. I treat others out of the compassion of Christ. And and I know my life's 
goal and purpose and value. They're all related to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. But the reality is we don't always reflect that in our lifestyle, do we? Here's a challenge for you. Think back over the last week and all the decisions that you had to make. And you had to make decisions all the time. Think about all the decisions that you made in the last week. Now, who really made those decisions? Were they made by a citizen of this world? Living by the value system of this world? Or were they made by a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? according to the values and principles of the kingdom of heaven. See, when you deal with that question, you're dealing with some of the ultimate questions of life. About your life's purpose and the values of your life, your value system and what drives you. What kind of decisions did you make today? Already in this process of life. How have you treated others already today? How have you responded to God's prompting in your life today? Why are you present today? What kind of attitude brought you here today? What kind of attitude determined the offering that you will bring? What kind of attitude do you have today about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and his power and his leadership? This is a very challenging time in which we live today. And I will admit to you, I live with anger and I live with frustration and all the stuff that's going on around me that I don't have any control over. But I have to be reminded over and over and over again that I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. That's not given to me, nor to you. But it's in the hands of God. And whether seven or eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon for gas, it doesn't catch God off guard. Everything that's going on, he's aware of. But we're challenged to live in faith with that. And I will admit, I've really had to dig deep and deal with that. But I don't like what's going on around me. It doesn't fit into my system. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think it fits into yours either. That's why we have to look at Jesus and look at his, look at his commitment and the challenge that he gives to us. Jesus says ultimately to the Pharisees, look at my life and see how I act. Am I afraid of Herod? Am I afraid of you? Do you think you're going to stop me from doing what God has sent me to do? And then we have to look at our life and the forces of evil against us. And say, who lives in me? Well, Christ lives in me. Well, how does that evident? We must display the same kind of love, the same kind of compassion that Jesus made evident in his life. We must live as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world while we await our transportation into the kingdom of heaven and into the realm of eternity known as the kingdom of heaven. 
See, I cannot say that I am a citizen of heaven, a child of God, and make myself a stranger to the principles of the kingdom of God. I think those of you in following in, in your life groups today and in, in the Bible studies for life are in a very interesting study through the, in the, the Gospel of John. I think today you're talking about loyalty and I think about uh, Judas and, and um, that whole issue about being loyal to Christ. And I think in one of the research things that I read about that lesson this week is the new figures out, I think Lynn Pryor who wrote an article about that said about 90,000 people every year die as martyrs for the kingdom of God. They, they are willingly, they are willingly allowing their life to be taken from them simply because they will not renounce the kingdom of God and the teaching of Christ in their life. So don't, don't look at the fact that it says, don't tell me I'm willing to die for Christ. You don't need to worry about that today, not here. And Christ would say the same thing. No, 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 don't, don't, don't tell me that. I've already heard that from Peter enough. And I knew what he was going to do. You know, Peter said, I'm going to go up with you and I'll die with you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He said, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. Live for me. Show it to me. That's what he says. See, the challenge is to our level of commitment as we live in this world today. And how is that shaped? Well, our commitment to the Savior, our commitment to the Savior, is developed in our response to demands and distractions. To demands and distractions. In the midst of that, and you have to understand, you, you, you do know that we live under all kinds of demands all the time. People are demanding stuff from us. Life is demanding stuff from us. The family is demanding stuff from us. Work demands stuff from us all the time. And then there are always distractions, some kind of distraction out there that can take our eyes off the cross and off the kingdom of God. Always that. But our commitment to the Savior is developed in our response to the demands and distractions of life. The demands of discipleship are not easy, but Christ told them very plainly. He didn't sugarcoat the gospel. He didn't sugarcoat the demand of discipleship. He said the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have dens in which they can live. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He challenged those who would follow after him by saying, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow after me. And when those who just simply wanted to add Jesus into their life, the teachings of Christ that sounded nice, and you're talking about that kind of level of commitment, that's when they said, no, I don't think I want to go there. You see, some people will not respond because of the demands. The demands of the kingdom. And then you deal with the distractions of life. There are all kinds of distractions, not always necessarily bad. But there are distractions in life that we have to deal with. How do, how, how do we respond to that? Uh, a, a fellow pastor in the Presbyterian church by the name of John Purdy 
has written a book entitled Returning God's Call, the Challenge of Christian Living. And he talks about all the different metaphors by which we as believers are known. Christ followers, Christians, followers of the way, a travel along the Christian way, a soldier in God's army. And he says we need to come up with a more distinct metaphor to describe ourselves. And he recommends the phrase heroes of the call. And his rationale is that it's being in the image of one who has heard and keeps hearing a persistent summons to belief and action. Hearers of the call. Well, whether you agree with that or not, I think he's on to something. Because it deals with our faithfulness. So you see, there, there are three words that help us shape our faith and our level of commitment. The first is decision. We have to make a decision about the demands and distractions of life. Am I going to be willing to put the kingdom of God first in my life? Am I going to be willing to accept the demands of the kingdom of God? Am I going to be willing to deal with the distractions of life with an eternal mindset and kingdom of God first? That's the decision we have to make, that I will be a hero of the call and I will hear and I will persistently respond in action and faith and belief. The second word that helps shape our value system and our level of commitment is the word determination. We see that as we journey with Jesus along the road to Jerusalem. And I just love that phrase. I keep using it over and over that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to deter him from that. But we are called to that same kind of determination in our lifestyle. Why? Because it's not easy in this world today to live in the culture in which we live today to be a believer. It's like going up a down escalator. It's like swimming against the current. You've got easier options if you want to. But the kingdom of God has demands upon us that call for determination. That we constantly seek to be faithful and obedient. Little boy asked his mama one day. He said, Mama, do people who tell lies go to heaven? And she said, of course not. And the little boy said, well, it must be awfully lonely up there in heaven where only God and George Washington So the reality is we need to check our level of commitment because we all fail at some point, don't we? None of us are perfect. None of us. None of us can make it perfectly. You ever use anything called Formula 409? Probably the indication is the first 408 formulas didn't work. You got any can of WD-40 around your house? called WD-40 probably because the first 39 attempts to make it failed. We will fail, but we must have a determination that says we're going to persevere to be obedient to the kingdom call. And then the third word. You had decision, you had determination, and now discipline. If we're going to live a committed life to Christ, we have to be disciplined. We have to be 
disciplines. We've got to follow these spiritual disciplines in life. And the disciplines, you see, allow us to be faithful when life isn't easy. That's why we always talk about you got to have your quiet time, your Bible study time, being in the presence of God because that's where you build that relationship. That's where, that's where, you, that's where you gain your spiritual muscle and strength for dealing with life and the issues of life is discipline. I haven't watched much of the college basketball season until they get to tournament time, and I like that. I liked watching that yesterday. And I've noticed something. The, the teams that do well in March in the tournaments, basketball fan, you ought to notice this. They are the ones who stick well to the fundamentals. They are the teams that are the most disciplined teams. I was particularly interested in watching last night the Virginia Tech game against Duke. Coach Mike Krzyzewski, after 42 years at Duke, that was his last ACC game that he would coach. The coach, my, my interest in Virginia Tech was because uh, uh, Mike Young is the coach at Virginia Tech. He coached for years at Walford, my alma mater. He got a chance to go big time to Power 5 school to Virginia Tech. His third year there, he had them playing for the ACC championship. And guess what? They knocked off Duke last night. But I noticed something. In the second half, Duke acted like they were the team of fatigue. Virginia Tech was playing their fourth game in the fourth day. They were the ones who were supposed to run out of gas. But so many times, Duke was taking a wild three-point shot, and there was no Duke player anywhere near the basket to get the rebound. That was not a typical Mike Krzyzewski coach Duke team on the floor last night. I think they were outcoached and outplayed. One of the pundits on Twitter last night said, does this mean Coach K is on the hot seat? <laughs> what difference does it make? He's retiring after these years. He's retiring. This is his last season. I remember about John Wood. Remember that? He coached at, at UCLA for years and years and years. The Wizard of Westwood. He won 10 national championships. You know what he did with them the first three days of practice? He taught them how to put on their socks. You know that? That's ridiculous. You go through practice and you get blisters on your feet because your socks are bunched up and they don't fit right. You don't play. You don't play well. I mean, he started with that basic fundamental. You go way back. Coach John McKay, Coach USC Trojans for a long time. He would start by going into the, the first day of practice and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And from there, they were taught the fundamental. The fundamentals for us are that time that we spend with Christ, engaging ourselves in prayer and Bible study and in worship and witnessing, and the stewardship habits are the required of us. You see, our level of commitment is forged against the, the demands and the distractions of life. But our level of commitment is to be challenged by the example of Jesus Christ. In this passage of Scripture, as we walk through that with him, Shows us his commitment. And see, our commitment is that we have to have a relationship with Christ. We have to let Christ live in us. And then we must allow the love of Christ to rule our lives, the love of Christ to direct our thoughts, and the love of Christ to guide our actions. That's the commitment that he calls for. Commitment of Christ is so obvious in these passages that we'll study. 
But what about our own commitment? Do we allow the love of Christ to rule our lives, to direct our thoughts, and to guide our actions? Father in heaven, we thank you today for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to fulfill the mission with which you sent him into this world. We see his commitment today. Help us to live in response to that with a level of commitment that you desire us to live with. Father, we want to respond to that. We want to accept the demands of discipleship and we want to be able to to live with the demands of discipleship above all the distractions of life so that your love flows through us and we're committed to you. We live as citizens of, the, of, of heaven here on earth awaiting the glorious return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so Father, I pray that anyone here today who has not yet responded to your love and made, the, made that commitment to embrace your love and your forgiveness so they'll do so. And then for those of us who know you, who, who try to live for you, that, that, we will, that we will look at our level of commitment and we will answer the basic questions in life about who drives our values and how we respond, and it will be the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. Help us to do that, Lord. Father God, we want to honor you in all we do. Help us to be committed to you through Christ our Lord.